know, our African-American kids probably think that they don't have a chance here mm -hmm. in Cleveland. They look around, they don't see it. And they don't right. see it. So I think if they would see it more, mm -hmm. that would give them more hope and they would mm -hmm. may they may want to stay around. But I think they feel like if they go to other places that have more people like them, that's where they get better opportunities. I'm back at the College Hill Rec Center with Demetrius, Lawrence, and Shanika, three of the most prominent voices in the College Hill community. They've been involved in everything from politics to sports to community service. Shanika actually runs the rec center itself, which is a fitting place for us to hang out today. Hello, my name is Demetrius Ramsey. I'm uh, executive director of Bradley Cleveland Community Services. I've been serving in that role for 10 years and also am a mentor and scholarship chairman for the 100 Black Men of Bradley County. And then also have the privilege of serving with some other uh, mentors in the community through an organization called Empowering Students Academically. Okay. Uh, Hello, my name is Lawrence Armstrong. I work for Segura Chemical Company in Charleston, Tennessee, where I've been employed for 22 years. I was past president of the local NAACP here in Bradley County for 11 years, also a member of the 100 Black Men. Um, volunteer with different organizations, as Demetrius has mentioned, and uh, just volunteering with that, most community involvement within the African-American community. Okay. Shanika Jones, um, I'm the facility manager here at College Hill Recreation Center. Um, I'm also um, assistant basketball coach at Cleveland High School. Working with the city, we tend to partner with different people. We partner with Demetrius and his organization as well. And I too was working with uh, ESA. One of the things that sort of has emerged as we've been recording this over and over is there's sort of this cycle here in town and maybe in all towns, right? Where our young, our young black kids who have so much promise and they have they could bring so much to our own community, feel like there isn't a place for them here, right? So at some point they feel like if I'm gonna make something out of myself, I have to leave, right? I have to leave Cleveland. So, you know, um, I know I've thought a lot about like how we retain, like what we need to do to, re to identify and, and retain like our, our, so that our black community isn't constantly leaving to just go somewhere else. When you were, so you're here now, but was there a time you felt like this town didn't have anything for you? I don't think I ever felt that the town didn't have anything for me. I just think that the jobs or the money that I was wanting wasn't here at the time. So that forced me to go to Chattanooga to work, but I still lived here. Sure. For you, like when... And, and listen, this is something that can edit out mm -hmm. or that can stay in or whatever, but like for you, because you're black, not to have the position that you need? Like, for instance, if you were making, would you say like what you would have been offered, there was a time like when you were like, well, I have to work in Chattanooga. I live here in Cleveland. I love it in Cleveland, but I have to work in Chattanooga, right? Do you feel like that is because no no one doing what you do makes what they need to make here? Or do you think it was like, 
race in any way. I mean, the, the show's about this, right? So, like, yeah. I'm not trying to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Or do you think there just weren't those opportunities just weren't open for anybody? Or they weren't open for you or open for black people or minorities? No, it was more so my choice. It wasn't that sure. it was because I was black or anything like that. This is what I chose to do. Yes. I mean, there were yeah. job opportunities here that I could have taken, but I wanted what I wanted, so that's yes. what I did. Okay, cool. Yeah. But it's still a glass ceiling. And to your point, when you want to talk about the, the racism part of it, this is where, um, like she said, she made a choice to come back for the position that she accepted, mm -hmm. but to go and advance to certain levels of position of authority within this community, there's still those opportunities. When you look at the county or the city government or certain school systems, mm -hmm. when you look at leadership, you don't see minorities. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say that glass ceiling, she found the position she was comfortable with that met her needs for that particular time. For her opportunities of advancement, it's very slim. When you hear about the glass ceiling, I think there's a lot of connotations to that. Obviously, it means you're looking up at something that you can see through. You can see up above it. You can see where you want to go. But you can't get there. You keep slamming into it again and again. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have in America. It's like white people say to black people, okay, you can succeed, but only so far. It's the exact sort of thing that most white Americans would be absolutely furious at. In fact, we use terms like, you gotta shatter that glass ceiling. But when a black person tries to, they're just held down. Because when you look at where she is and whoever has held a position higher than her, in this community, there's never been anyone of African-American descent, especially mm -hmm. from this community. That's where the challenges come from. Tell so me, that's why I speak yeah. of the glass ceiling. No, I, I, yeah, I hear you. I, I definitely think uh, that's been, I, I know it's a lot on my mind, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a lot on my mind. And mm -hmm. I, let me tell you why that is. And uh, this might be one of those moments. I know I apologize for the way that I say these kind of things a lot, but I don't know how to not say them. So one of the things that when we talk about like race relations, right? Like we're here at the table, like literally talking, just talking, right? And when we talk about like things that are cultural, one of the things that uh, is super cultural, like within the white community, is this idea of like setting up or setting people up for success, right? Mm -hmm. So. You know, Jake has a son, and that son has an interest, and so Jake is doing business with a, a guy who is in the industry that Jake's son is in, is, has an interest in, and so he goes to that guy, and they like go out after church on Sundays to lunch and do that, and so at some point the guy Jake knows says to Jake's son like, "Hey, when you graduate, there's a place for you here, right? It's like a predetermined path." that is laid out, right? That is, that is laid out before them, right? Um, when I am told about like how much we lose, right? Like uh, in our black community, our kids who like graduate high school, leave maybe to go to another college or even go to college here, but then leave and don't come back. It's like that cycle doesn't, isn't existing. Now, here's the question. 
and I, I don't want to even speculate. I'm, I'm literally just going on. Is that because this same sort of culture doesn't exist within our black community here? Or is it because on some deeper level, right, you and me aren't going out to lunch together after church? Correct. Right, those so, so tell those, me about it. Those opportunities don't present itself. So first of all, when you just, what you just alluded to, so as you're going out with those that you know, you're not inviting me to the party. I'm not a part of those lunch conversations. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have those relationships, then how can we right. have those conversations? One of the things early on to kind of, and again, this is always open to everybody. Early on, right, <clears throat> what we would hear always from the, early, the, the older people was that like in their day-to-day, -day, right, racism almost didn't even exist. It was like black kids and white kids playing together, going in and out of one another's houses, everybody living together, but that the racism existed when they came into the city and like went to church or were at business, right? And that there was like this weird, like now, like we're all hanging out together here in the county, now we're gonna go to church and I'm gonna go to a white church and you're gonna go to a black church. And it's like that fostering of like our community together is somehow separated at this like very deep, kind of deep level. Does that, am I, am I making sense oh, yeah, at all? Mm -hmm. So have you felt the same sort of feeling, Demetrius? Have you felt, well, I, I think that's really articulated well. Like I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying very clearly like how what what are your thoughts I completely agree with Lawrence um, as you were asking the question uh, though I, I self-reflected and you know and was processing in my mind the reality that I would not be serving as director of Bradley Cleveland Community Services Agency had two things not happened uh, one being uh, that the former executive director knew that I had a, a passion for community and wanted to, to really work in the community and took me under his wing and groomed me I'm using your right. word because that was the, the way you right. I, I know I like I know that that's like a mm -hmm. maybe a very white thing no, I don't no, know no, if it no, is no. or it I'm isn't cool. well, but I can tell you it is white it may be in everybody but it is like we definitely I guarantee you Jake probably talks about grooming his sons all the time Wes me Robert, like that's a word that okay. we use all the time. And it's like, I want, you know, my oldest son right now is very much into coding and mechatronics and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I've already just dropped by Cleveland State and their mechatronics lab to just literally walk in the door. Like, I don't have permission. Nobody said, hey, bring him by. Mm -hmm. I literally walked in and was like, are you the director? <laughs> this mm -hmm. is my son. He has an interest. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like so intentional mm -hmm. right so yeah grooming is like exactly what yeah. I so, so so you know my, my pastor yeah. my pastor was very intentional about uh, grooming me to succeed him uh, after a few conversations and and, um, and so I was working in Chattanooga um, at Cigna at the time and then was offered a position at, at, uh, at CSA and over a few years uh, he prepared me so that he could pass that, that torch. And so I was thinking about that. Second thing uh, was the grooming that took place uh, within the NAACP. 
Um, okay. So uh, Ray Sharon King and Lawrence, uh, you know, asked me to join the organization uh, while Lawrence was president, and that the the leadership skills that I learned as a part of that organization right. um, learned how um, uh, to um, articulate. Uh, difficult messages to right. diverse audiences. Right. Those types of things groomed me for the role that I now serve in as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and when, here you are. Here I am. Right, and you're here. And you're here. You didn't feel like you had to leave to like go, uh, go do something elsewhere. Right, because right. you were, in a sense, like you were tapped early. Right. Like somebody looked at you and said, "I see your potential." Right. I want you to stay here. So, if the majority of white people feel like they can stay here and have a future, then the pool of eligible workers is bigger, right? If the brightest, best minorities are like, I have, they look at the, they look at, at, at everything like you say, and they say there's no future here. Then I shrink. Then I shrink. So by the time I get up to that business level. I'm like, well, yeah, but I don't have anybody qualified. Well, you don't have anybody qualified because you didn't reach out when they were young and bright and hopeful and looking for something locally. So my own opinion that I haven't figured out how to dress at all because I'm not a brilliant politician in town is that, is how to like actually go into these companies and say like, here's how you're going to reach them before they leave, right? Instead of finding, I think it's a cheap excuse to say like, well, yeah, you're like, we have diversity training. We know it's important, but we can't find anybody qualified. Well, they're not qualified because they're all, like, making other communities better because they felt like they had to leave here, you know? So I, I don't know. That's so when you talk about diversity, one of the things I want to make sure um, people understand, please don't talk about diversity without the part, the inclusion piece. Because diversity and inclusion is all in, it should be all together. Yeah. Part of the piece is people want to talk about the diversity but without any kind of inclusiveness, then you don't really get the full impact of the biggest bang for the buck. Because basically I'm telling you and sharing my story on what you should do, but then if you're not open to the inclusion part of making sure that you're gonna include these people to help you mm -hmm. to get to where you're trying to go, then that defeats the purpose. I think there's a big importance in equality and inclusion in all areas of life. It's not just saying, hey, go do the best you can do with the College Hill area. It's not just saying, well, we'll assist you in making your neighborhood the best neighborhood it can be. I really think it's more about saying to minorities, hey, please come help our neighborhoods be better. Please come help our city be a better place. Help us live life to the fullest for all of us. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit. I'm, I'm going to let me. Let me ask this, and uh, I know it's sensitive, like what I'm going to say, maybe. Again, we can edit it out. But how do you feel, right, Shanika? Like you're hearing, he's sitting here and he's saying, like, when we look at these positions, we don't see very many uh, minorities. And you are one. How does it feel to be in a, a minority of a minority? Um, I can use a, an example. Um, okay. There was a position that came open within the city 
And being I do have uh, a bachelor's and a master's, I wasn't even asked about the position if I would want it. It was automatically assumed that I just want to stay here. You can't just make any assumptions like that. Just like anybody else, I would like to move up at right. some point. But um, I guess sometimes it makes me feel like um, there are not people there because they don't want them there or not even taking the time to see if they can be there because there's people that are in those positions that aren't even qualified or shouldn't be there, but they're with that grooming thing or it was just handed to them or... That's right. Pre-picked, right? Yeah, pre-picked. They were pre-picked by somebody who mm -hmm. already, yeah. So, yeah, it, it it makes you think, like, why did you even go to school or, or what was your purpose of going to school when you mm -hmm. still can't be on top because you still have these things going on? Yeah. That's one of those, I, I've talked to uh, Olympia a lot about that when this comes up and these things like, uh, so from your four, new 40 year old white friend, first of all, I'm sorry that it's like that. Second of all, like it enrages me. Like if I put myself in your shoes, I like freak out, right? Like that's an actual example. Like when I'm trying to explain to other white people who might listen to this podcast, like that don't understand, that don't understand like really what we mean when we talk about white privilege is like, I have grown up with the privilege to say like, that's unfair. No way. And like literally like walk into a building and go, you, why would you just give it to this person? Right. And like, it's like, it's like, it's great. It's crazy. Right. And like to think that like we have, I'm sitting here now with you three that would be like, oh yeah, like what am I going to do? Do that and never work in this town again. Right. Like you don't, you just don't get, it's wrong to say that you have the same opportunities that I have because you don't. Like I actually would have the opportunity to be enraged. I would have the opportunity. I mean, I probably, I could probably like write a, a full length page in the newspaper and be like, I want to say my piece, how I got passed over for this and I'm just as qualified and my name is Rob Alford. But see, that's, that's where the beginning of the conversation really needs to take place. Because first of all, everyone needs to acknowledge that piece. Yeah. Until you yeah. can get those to accept and, and accept the responsibility of white privilege and admitting that it does exist, then it's kind of like telling a crackhead that he's not addicted to drugs or telling somebody, you know, they're strung out on drugs, they're not addicted when they got to have it every day. That's, that's right. addiction. Yeah, no, I totally. And so that's what I'm saying is that those that you say that would possibly listen to it, that may be open-minded enough to listen, um, that would be real interesting to see, just getting that panel together to accept that. One of the things that was done yeah. this year that was, I think, was um, a first for me in, in this community uh, we had a Martin Luther King Day program, and it was the first Martin Luther King Day march here in the city of Cleveland. And the pastor, and forgive me for not remembering his name off the top of my head, from Broad Street United Methodist Church, mm -hmm. stood in his pulpit. And first thing he did was welcome everyone to his church, but he apologized to the black community. Right. Do you remember what he apologized for? He apologized for those that were before him and his ancestors that was involved and owned slaves and a part of the slavery and the prejudices that took right. place prior to, he was apologizing for his ancestors and for the things right. that was done before him in a public forum where predominantly with a crowd was pretty much a predominantly white crowd. Right. And that was a first mm -hmm. in this community that I'm ever aware of. Some of them look at breakfast. 
No, this was at the march when we went to the church. Gotcha. And we assembled at the church, and he was beginning the program. Amongst this program, you yes. had the city mayor. Yes. You had um, yes. a lot of dignitaries within this this facility. And for this young man to stand up there and say that, that was the beginning. That was that was a start. Mm-hmm. Someone is acknowledging and taking responsibility to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Right. Right. That was a first yeah. to be and public. And he said, you are welcome. And you are welcome. You're welcome. Right. You're welcome here. Right. Yes. Lawrence brings up an important point. It's something that I've thought about a lot when I think about the term reparations and just how divisive that term is in America. You know, sometimes the most important thing a person can do is to apologize and to make amends for what they've done wrong. It's not about those things being monetary necessarily, but it is about them being fair. It would be wrong, completely incorrect to say, that black people in America get a fair shake compared to their white counterparts. It's just not true. It's not true for all minorities. So I think when we think about reparations, maybe the first place we should start isn't with a monetary number, but with an apology. You know, that's the beginning. That's the start. If you want to be, if that, that's why I say it's great, and this is one of the things I'm challenged with, is because it's great to have a conversation, but where are we having these conversations at? Yeah. Do we have right. the conversations in small group settings where you and I can talk about it and nobody else will really, really see my face with you? Or do we have these conversations in an environment where there's all your family and friends and they're going to hear you be openly honest and agree mm-hmm. with what we're saying? I think, um, you know, he and I have had a number of experiences through the years of <laughs> trying to uh, form partnerships and build relationships, tear down walls. So I completely understand why he um, sees things through through that lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, I now, too, (laughs) look at life through that lens. Uh, I think, um, you know, I try to be optimistic, though, Mm -hmm. which is sometimes hard. Jake and I both, uh, you know, and and, and Shanika as well, when you are a public servant. Yeah. you know, you have a different set of challenges every single day. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I try to be optimistic, but sometimes I struggle with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. I'm, I had an interview with somebody, an older member of the community, and uh, when I went in to interview her, there were people who said to me, I can't believe she let you in. she was very clear with me the same feeling right to say like you know I think your first words were like well Mr. Rob why are you here right like what is your agenda and I said why are you here let me know what you want to talk about you know um I think I want to say so let me say there's nothing unfair or unreasonable there's not, not, not a, a piece of it that isn't well earned. Years and years and years and personal experiences of being disregarded by people, both like as a culture or as an individual, that's your, that's your for real experience. And so I affirm it. 
I hear I hear what you're saying. And I didn't sit down next to you to not hear the hard things you say. Right. Um, and I think, like, those, these are those gaps, right? Like, these are the places, like, the only time, like, so only time will ever go past the surface, right? Only if you all know me or Wes or Jake or the members of the city and the county council or people in the community. Um, there are certain things only time does. And, and yet, in a moment, the right public figure can say something that like so deeply touches you and like alters like your perception of what's possible, right? Forever. And I think um, it's expand. I think it's expanding on that, like more of that and more of that and, and more of that, right? Like more for real interaction that's small, more big interaction that is inclusive, truly inclusive, truly inclusive. <laughs> like, you know. I would yeah. like to um, try to um, paint a picture for you. Um, I talked about uh, some of you know that Lawrence and I have had a lot of experience uh, trying to build relationships and trying to you know um, partner with different members of the community and uh, not long ago uh, we were invited to the table um, to partner with some some individuals and um, sometime between that uh, encounter that opportunity mm -hmm. uh, we those who invited us then uh, made a statement uh, uh, that was offensive and in the statement that was made they were feeling like they needed to train us he and I uh, how to talk what to say when we go before the powers that be or those that we're trying to meet with um, as if we lacked uh, the experience, the wisdom, the know-how to communicate what we wanted to communicate ourselves. And so when you serve faithfully, uh, and I, I said earlier that public service is hard. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, uh, not only are we trying to work with, um, you know, the Jakes, We've also got to work with <laughs> the Shanikas. And when you come to, you know, if you invite me to the table, but then while I'm there, you feel like you need to school me, then that's when you start looking at, at things through the lens of, yeah. Are you with me? Do you remember the Thanksgiving table, the kids' table? That's like the side table, right? It's the place that you sit when you're less important. You sit at the side table when the grown-ups don't think you're important enough to be at the main table. I think this is what's been so infuriating to Demetrius and Lawrence through the years. They feel like they get invited to a table over and over and over again, but then they look down and they realize that table's the side table. It's a table where they're gonna get managed. And these are two men that are definitely not going to let themselves be managed. Not by anybody. Because I think that to look around at promotions and new positions, 
but not being able to feel that those positions are available for you, even though you're qualified, would be maddening. To hear about positions that came and went before you were ever even given the chance because they figured you just probably didn't want to rise to that challenge is ridiculous and unfair, and it would make anybody angry. And a lot of this podcast has been about that recognition. As I look back through every single person on this podcast and everything they had to say, one theme is clear. We're here and we're available and we're qualified and we're sick and tired of seeing the young people of our community leave town because they think there's nothing for them here. Are you enjoying listening to College Hill? We sure hope so. And if you are, we'd love you to know that this was made possible through the generous donations of the United Way of the Ekoi region. The United Way does so many things in the community. From helping people with poverty to education, the United Way is focused on every community that they're in, and that is especially true of the United Way of the Ekoi region. 